So I'm here today with Anne Kenvig, COO of Pacific Blue Cross in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, thank you so much for being here, Anne. It's oh, a pleasure to have you. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. So we're um, interested in talking to Anne as part of our um, Women in the C-Suite series, Women, Power, and Position. And Anne is our first interviewee as part of our Reflections on Respect special edition focusing on this issue of women, equity, gender, and progression in corporate life. So um, maybe you can just start off, Anne, by telling us a little bit about Pacific Blue Cross, just for people that are not aware of the organization. Oh, oh thanks, Erica. Pacific Blue Cross is uh, BC's largest provider of health and dental benefits. Uh, we do business and serve uh, over 1.5 million British Columbians uh, in BC and the Yukon. We have about 750 employees. We have 8,000 employer groups that are primarily, you know, employers and businesses, but we also have a big segment for public sector, so the government and health benefit trust, uh, which which represents all the health authorities and the community service organizations, as, as well as a lot of uh, union, union business and association business. But in addition to our group business, we also have um, 60,000 individual plan customers, so we provide individual uh, health and dental and travel products. So that gives you a bit of scope around uh, what we do in terms of uh, our block of business. Wow, okay. Now you are the um, Chief Operating Officer. I am. And um, because the focus of this series is really about women and progression uh, into these kinds of positions, it would be really helpful, I think, for us to have a sense of how you got here, what was your journey, you know, just sort of the steps that you took in your career to get to the place that you are, which is obviously a pretty, uh, I think, impressive accomplishment for anyone, and particularly, I think, uh, you know, these days for a woman. Yes, I'm. I, it's been an interesting journey for me. I actually have an HR labor relations background. So I, I worked at Canadian Airlines in a labor relations capacity before coming to Pacific Blue Cross. And uh, for 13 years, I've held the position prior to this one as uh, Vice President of Human Resources. And so, um, really, my professional background is an HR profession, professional, but um, I, was, I moved into the Chief Operating Officer position in July of 2011, and uh, it's just been a great shift for me. And I, I never expected my career to take the path into a senior operations position. Um, and it was really uh, through discussion with my CEO a number of years ago, maybe three, four years ago, and he was starting to contemplate the succession plan for his position. And he asked me if I was interested, and I, I laughed. I thought, well, no. Uh, I, I said, that I, I can't do that job. And... And it was really through a lot of dialogue with him where he was actually very encouraging and, and prodding about, well, why don't you think you can do it? You know, you're, you know he, he saw in me a lot of potential. And my, my initial instinct was that I didn't have sufficient financial savvy. Okay. But, and I think that could, that could be true of other women. Uh, but in fact, I, I, I am good with numbers. It just might take me a little bit longer. And I have worked very hard to make sure that I understand the levers in our business and how they impact our financial statements and how things flow through. So it was really um, through that conversation that planted the seed in my head about, well, yes, well, why can't I? I 
I could have a career outside of human resources. And, you know, the, it germinated and I thought about it. And I've been, for the last three years, actively engaged in a significant development plan. I've done a number of things, including making sure I'm, uh, I have uh, a really good understanding of our, of our financials. And uh, a few other things, I've just completed my, uh, my certification for ICD.D, which is through um, the Institute of Corporate Directors, which gives me great governance insight. And um, so here I am now, and I'm hoping to compete for the CEO position uh, when my boss retires, which I think it will be sometime in 2013, unless he changes his mind. Um, and. I don't know if I'll get it, but I'm uh, certainly working towards being better able to compete for that position. Okay. Now, I just want to pick up on something that you said when he offered you the position and you said, oh, no, I can't do that job. So was it just simply because it was a shift from what you were thinking of yourself as? Because I think, you know, when we think about women and career progression and maybe compare that to men, it could be, I think, and I think the, the research shows this, that women often do limit because of, I think, the limits we put on ourselves. So was it because you didn't have the financials or...? Well, I, I, think, I, I think, as you say, it was I, I sort of stuck myself in this box mm-hmm. and um, it, was, I, it had never crossed my mind. And so when he was questioning and prodding me, um, it was my natural, my natural instinct is that, no, I'm not capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I was really limiting myself. But when I thought about it, you know, so it was really over a period of six months before I committed that I was prepared to go on this journey wherever it may take me. Um, It was really that period of time where I just had to kind of change my self-talk. It's like, no, I'm capable. Right. And I think that's really an important point for women, particularly women that are interested in, in you know, progressing in their career in any in any fashion, I think is one to watch our self talk. Because I think if you'd ask sort of a typical man, a typical woman, I think a man's reaction would be quite different. Sure I can do that job. Whereas I think as women we tend to think, oh no, I can't. So, you know, I think that's a really good, I think, learning point for women is we need to maybe be our own advocate and not be working against ourselves. I, I agree with that. I think the other thing that's important, um, to stress is that for individuals who are in positions of power like CEOs and COOs, it's really important for them to initiate those kinds of conversations for individuals, particularly women and members of visible minorities that might not self-identify for these kinds of higher positions in an organization. And because it was that conversation, your CEO, that decided to engage in that discussion that then allowed you to make this journey, and obviously it's turned out really well, both for you and the, and the organization. Yes, and uh, that's true, and uh, I, I think that is one of um, an area that needs improvement is that women don't sell themselves. So a, a, a male probably would have said, oh, or expressed an interest and taken, you know, taken the initiative to do that, whereas mm-hmm. women kind of stand back and... Um, I, I think it's you need to identify what you want and you go for it. Right. So that leads us kind of into um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, how has gender, because obviously you're a woman, um, how do you think that that has affected your career progression, if at all? Has it helped? Has it hindered? 
you know, what would you say, how do you think sort of gender and, and has, a, has influenced your, your career? I, I don't think that gender has influenced my career, except when I reflect on my career early on, um, I do believe that women who are sort of at the beginning or mid, mid part of their career need to work harder than men uh, to demonstrate their worth. So uh, I, you know, I put in lots of hours and I really focused on getting results, uh, whereas it seemed my male counterparts didn't kind of have to work quite as hard. But I can't say that gender has impacted me later on in my career. I think that was an issue earlier on in my career. So when you say you have to work harder, do you think it's just because there's a more of an, a willingness to sort of believe that men can do it? Or is it that women think they, you know, where is that coming from? Is it that women think they have to work harder to prove themselves? Or is it actually people expect more? That's an interesting question. I'm not, I'm not sure I know what that's about, except that um, maybe it's, again, it's self-imposed. Mm-hmm. But I, in, early on in my career, I did see um, wage dis, wage discrimination. Oh, really? Uh, I, certainly, so I've experienced that. And I, I think part of that is whether or not you're promoted from it, from within versus being recruited externally. And, um, you know, they're sort of the philosophy of the employer. But um, to demonstrate my ability, I do think that I... I put in a lot of hours, and perhaps that was my own my own bias. So when you say you experienced wage discrimination, you mean there were people in comparable positions to yourself that were men that were getting more money? Yes. Okay. <laughs> 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 and, I mean, you know, that is born in the research because it's fairly typical. Yeah. And, you know, some people would argue it's because men negotiate a higher salary, but others would argue it's simply the way of the world. Is that... The assumption is men get paid more because they're men. Either that or, and perhaps exacerbated by the fact that women, just like we were talking about, you know, asserting your interest in mm-hmm. a, a different position, perhaps don't assert themselves with respect to salary as well. Okay. So I think one thing that's already coming out pretty clearly is that uh, one of the one of the things that may be impacting women's progression is their own behaviors, <laughs> our own behaviors, our maybe our, our self-talk and then our unwillingness to speak up for ourselves, our unwillingness to say what we need to self-identify. So I think these are all really important things for women to be aware of in terms of how we can support ourselves um, uh, stepping into our own power to be able to you know, progress our careers. Because it's always easy to point, you know, to external factors and say, well, it's that or that or that. It's that thing that's preventing me. But it's helpful, I think, if we can start with ourselves and say, am I doing everything I can? And that means looking internally and looking externally. Yes, I, th- I think that's a good insight. Okay, now, talking about women in power, um, something that I talk about a lot, and certainly last year, um, when I presented the closing keynote for the Wealth Academy for Women, my topic was as is often my topic, women in power. Um, And as part of my presentation, I googled that topic, women in power, and the first quote that came up was this one. Powerful women are either sexually voracious rulers like Catherine the Great or Elizabeth I, or treacherous bitches like Cleopatra or Helen of Troy. Now, you know, 
I don't think that that's the kind of quote that makes anybody want to say, oh, I'm a powerful woman. But, you know, the fact is, you and many others, women, are a woman in a position of power. And I really think it's interesting for me and those that are listening and reading um, to have a bit of a sense of your thoughts on the reality of being a woman in a position of power, given the stereotypes and biases that are out there. And in addition, what tips might you have for young women that are contemplating working their way up the corporate power hierarchy and how to negotiate their power in a way that will work for them? Okay, well, I I do agree that there's a tendency to label women uh, leaders differently from men. I I think certainly that's that's my experience, or at least I sense that's uh, what people would, um, would do with me. You know, if you're collaborative and you engage in team-based decision-making, they view, they view you to be weak and not in control of the situation. But if you take control, you're labeled a bitch. You know, and I don't think that the same is true for men. I mean, and men can also be collaborative and team-based, but they wouldn't be viewed to be weak. They'd be viewed to be a good leader. And, and we've had this conversation in, uh, in the past, and it really resonated with me, is that maybe it's around um, people perceive leaders, which are typically in CEO positions, to be men, and they expect you to behave in a certain way. And perhaps when women have a different approach to uh, similar situations, it would be worthwhile to state the intention, which is, I'm prepared to make a decision, but my preference is to work as a team and come up with the best solution. So rather than let people make assumptions based on their view of what a leader should be doing, it might be appropriate to state uh, state the assumption. So that's something that I'm going to try going forward to see if that helps provide a, a shift in thinking. But my advice to women is that, uh, you know, regardless of whether they label is I'd be ignoring all that noise. Um, I don't, I think that's distracting. I think um, particularly for women, we need to focus on what provides meaning to us and the work that you perform you need to feel passionate about and it has to give you meaning and a strong sense of purpose and that's what I'd focus on. I wouldn't be overly concerned about how people perceive you or label you. Uh, just be doing the right thing, make a difference, have meaning. Uh, I think it's important to be optimistic, and uh, one of my strengths, I think, is to be resilient, which has served me well. Uh, there's always going to be trying times, but it's really how you react to those that's important. Um, and my other perspective on this is that uh, life is a journey, and my career is a journey, and it's not really the destination that counts. Would I be disappointed if I didn't get the CEO position? Most probably because I've worked hard, but um, it's it's been you know I, would I have any regrets? None at all because I've just been exposed to such interesting uh, interesting people and a variety of issues, and it's made me a better person. So regardless of where I land, um, I, I think my I, I have opportunities. So it, it really is about the journey and making sure that you it provides meaning. Um, and another thing that I wanted to mention because I, I just think it's so I've, I, I received some good insights from it okay. is um, that women leaders take the time to read How Remarkable Women Lead which was authored by Joanne Barsh and Susie Cranston and is based on five years of research from the Centered Leadership Project through McKinsey and Company right. and it, it really uh, it, it researched o- across the world 
uh, successful women leaders and extracted research through that. And uh, so much of that resonated with me, and I've incorporated uh, some of their suggestions into my uh, development plan and my journey. So I would highly encourage anyone who's interested in kind of taking the next step forward to invest in that read. And would you say that in your experience, and again, I always hate to sort of group like, you know, do gen, you know, label people on the basis of gender, but would you say there's sort of differences in the way women lead and the way men lead? Oh, absolutely. I think there are. And and would you say it's gender based? Is it just is is it because women are women and men are men, or is it their experience, or what do you think that's due to? I think there's some underlying gender differences that um, that make make uh, us lead a little bit differently. It doesn't mean that it's mutually exclusive, right? But um, I think there are some some differences. And I think, um, you know, as we go forward and, and develop a leadership lexicon, it's really about looking at the qualities of leadership that work, being collaborative, or being able to make a decision. You know, those are both important things for leaders to be able to do, and it's re- whether you're a man or a woman, I think you probably want to have those tools in your toolkit, so to speak. Right. <laughs> but, and, and not label them, but, you know, I think it's interesting when you say collaboration is viewed as weak because you're a woman and you're engaging in that and it seems to suggest that you're not able to make a decision. I think that's sometimes how it's viewed. Yeah, which is just, you know, it's interesting because I guess that goes back to um, a stereotype or a misperception or a bias that women are indecisive. I I don't know what is that at the root of it. And I don't know where that comes from, but um, but it's interesting. So I guess, you know, one of the other things we want to be aware of in our journey is to be aware of those myths and stereotypes and say, is this true? You know, and then I think your, your point about clarifying your intention is probably really helpful so that people are aware of why you're making what, whatever stylistic choices you are, whatever choices you're making around your leadership style. When you clarify your intention, then people know what it, the reason for that. So Right, particularly if it's different from right. those who've led before you. Right, and that's, I guess, any kind of change. It's always helpful to lay the foundation before you just launch into it. Right. Okay, great. Um, Now, research clearly supports that having children is a career liability for women that are interested in making it to the C-suite. And I wanted your perspective on this reality. What's your experience been around this issue? Um, And in addition, do you have any thoughts about how to address this issue so that the playing field would be truly equalized, if that's even possible, with respect to women who do want to have children but also are interested in making it up to a a C-suite position? Well, because I, I don't have first-hand experience, I don't have children, so okay. it, it is hard for me to comment, although I can imagine how, how challenging it would be to have yet more competing priorities. Mm-hmm. You know, women, um, and, and it, perhaps this could be self-imposed as well, but they, they want to be great at their jobs, they want to be a, a, a great mother to their children, a good wife to their husband, a good daughter, a sibling, you know, they care about the family unit. Uh, oftentimes will take responsibility for making sure that the family gets together. You know, mm-hmm. they become, uh, you know, the, the, the glue in the, mm-hmm. in the mix. And so there's so many different roles, it's very hard to do it all well. Yes. Um, and, and myself, I think it would have been difficult to work harder, put more long hours in if I'd had children at home. So mm-hmm. I haven't had that experience, but I can imagine how challenging that would be. And 
and I think you really have more experience than I around what might help uh, equalize the playing field if it's if it's at all possible. But for me, one of the values that I I, I have and what's important to me is to make sure that I'm with an employer who has flexible work practices. Okay. And I can tell you that my boss has, um, when my mother was very ill before she died, for she was ill for a number of years, I had great flexibility to be at the hospital when I needed to be, and I could work at night. I made sure I got things done, but I had complete uh, flexibility in terms of how I did that. So that was really important to me, and in fact would be something that would make me think really hard about moving to another organization. Okay. And so when you think about... Um bringing women up into the leadership team. So you have here at uh, Pacific Blue Cross uh, flexibility in terms of, so how would a, a working mother be able to manage that practically? So what does the flexibility look like? Well, I, I guess it takes different forms. I mean, for people that are um, our unionized workforce, we have a 35-hour work week with flex time arrangements. So, you know, people can be finished at 3 so they can, or actually earlier than that, so that they can pick up their children from school. Okay. Uh, so we have lots of flexibility within the work provisions for bargaining unit staff, and uh, we are predominantly female. We're 80% female. Okay. And with, with managers that make a request to alter, perhaps spend a bit more time working at home, we, we look at those cases, and as long as it doesn't impact the business, okay. uh, then, then we look favorably on that, and I, I'm quite proud of Pacific Blue Cross and our openness in that regard. And I think the key there is as long as it doesn't impact the business. So it's about giving people flexibility to do their, not that they're not doing the work, but to give them flexibility to do the work that will allow them to deal with what they have to deal with in their personal lives. Right. But if it means they have to leave at 3 and deal with stuff and then get back to work at 7 or 8 at night, that works as long as the business needs are met. That's that's right. Right. And I think that that, you know, I think most forward-looking, certainly all the companies that I featured in my book, for example, have those kinds of policies. So you're finding that those really are working. And how do you think that that works from a sort of a loyalty and and making people feel valued and respected? Well, I I think it goes a long way. And and as I mentioned, just my own experience is that, you know, I've, there's a lot of search firms have uh, quartered me, and I've I've had some good opportunities, but I just think that you know the the flexibility that my boss has shown me in a, in a very in a senior position, mm-hmm. being able to do what I need to do because family is so critically important, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know how much value I placed in that. So I'm right. sure other employees feel the same way. Right, and so of course the takeaway there that I just want to emphasize for our listeners and readers is. Um, when we talk about attracting and retaining great employees, those kinds of cultural factors are critically important because you just said you made a decision to stay here because of those factors. And I think sometimes people discount those and think they're not important. It's just, you know, maybe the dollar figure or something. But No, people make decisions not on, on their salary and benefits. It's that intrinsic thing that is really hard to define. Right, so... I think that's an important takeaway is creating a culture where people feel that they're going to have the flexibility that they need to deal with their issues outside of work and 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 also I think being treated in a responsible way because when you say to an employee we trust that you're going to do the work and that we're going to let you go and figure out how to do that I mean it's kind of like treating people like grown-ups right <laughs> and they like that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, which they do 
Um, all right. Now, as you know, um, I spend a lot of my time uh, dealing with issues of disrespect, and in particular, harassment and bullying in the workplace. And the statistics, unfortunately, are that women are overwhelmingly targeted in these in these kinds of complaints. And you just said you've got 80% women here in your um, in your workforce. And particularly when it comes to bullying, it's women that tend to bully other women in most of those cases. Um, and I think, you know, my experience, actually, I don't think I know that this relates back to the dynamic of power that we were talking about earlier. And I wonder if you could share some of your experience with these kinds of issues um, in terms of um, this, I think, again, you know, the, what happens, why, if, if you've had any experience, why you think it would be that women might bully other women, and if you have any ideas about how to shift this reality for women at work. Well, I, I think I'll leave it with you to um, explain why women bully women. Uh, I, certainly, I know that to be true. That's true in our workplace, and it, I don't know why. I find it quite shocking, actually. Okay. Um, but you've seen it. I, absolutely, I've seen it. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen uh, you know, a, a, um, a man bully a woman. It's always a woman bully a woman. And, you know, this psychologically healthy workplace is, is uh, very important. And, of course, there's a lot of research and work going on in that regard. There's a number of things happening around some voluntary standards right. to improve yep. mental health and the, psycho mm -hmm. the psychology, psych psychologically healthy workplace. But um, so the approach that we've taken... and. We participated, one of the first actually pilot group to do the Guarding Minds at Work survey, which identifies uh, seven different categories, I think it's seven, where um, you could, do, you could um, help focus areas of improvement to make your place, your workplace um, healthier. Okay. And one of our lower scores was on respect, you know, a respectful workplace, and this links to uh, our predominantly female workforce and women behaving inappropriately with other women and right. making them uncomfortable and causing distress. And it's sometimes challenging. Um, it's Well, it is challenging dealing with inappropriate behaviors between co-workers from a manager's perspective because oftentimes they don't know what's happening and they're only aware when the damage is done. So someone has mm -hmm. gone on, on sick leave or, or disability. So oftentimes, particularly if you, you don't have... Um, lots of managers around, you don't even know what's going on and people remain quiet. Uh, but even when the manager is aware, it can be hard for them to manage as, as it's not really linked to their work performance, say their productivity or their outputs. It's about their behavior within a team and it be, for a number of reasons, I think that's more challenging for managers to deal with. But where, where I think you need to be as an employer is make sure that employees, managers are aware that you expect them to deal with it. There's zero tolerance around disrespectful behavior uh, and make sure that they're provided with training and support so that they do deal with it because in fact that can really change the dynamics of a team when there's unhealthy behavior mm -hmm. and uh, that has to be dealt with just as much as a work performance issue. And do you find that um, it's more difficult for women managers when they're managing a team of women? Uh, um, I think that it really depends on the skill of the leader in that, okay. in that regard, and that, that's not gender-based. But I do believe that, uh, you know, predominantly female workforces can be more challenging to manage. Okay. Um, and so sometimes it's uh, helpful to have... Uh, 
more balanced gender mix in the department. <laughs> okay. So just curious, what is it about groups of women that you think makes them more difficult to do, more challenging to manage? And we're not gender bashing here, we're just exploring the <laughs> well, theme. Well, what comes to mind is caddy, but you know, okay. I, I, I don't know how to describe that. Um, but they don't act very, sometimes even mature women don't act mm-hmm. very mature. Right. Yeah. They I mean, don't know how to resolve conflict, they pick on one another, they they gossip. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, gossiping's been a, an issue in the workplace, yeah. which we've yeah. tried to uh, you know, try to deal with, but mm-hmm. it, it's challenging. Yeah. Uh, but it's very harmful. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, goes back to I just actually tweeted a, an article um, at Mean Girls at Work because this is an ongoing issue, uh, just about why women do you know look at other women and even looking at Hillary Clinton and make comments about what she looks like or her hair, or, you know, and why is that relevant? <laughs> right. but, but it's it's kind of what women do, and again. Um, I think it's about us taking a step back and saying, are these behaviors we really want to embrace and how are these behaviors serving us or are they just behaviors that are habitual that women engage in without really thinking about it and, and what's reinforcing those behaviors? So I mean, you know, so I think starting conversations and dialogues about who we want to be as women in a workplace. I, I think that would be quite helpful yeah. because I think it's probably to a large part habitual. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of what yeah. what we've done. Right. And it's reinforced in the media. Right. There was um a, a, a documentary that Oprah, uh, Oprah's network, the own network, just did called Misrepresentation about the misrepresentation of women in media, and it focused on exactly that issue, mm-hmm. which is how you know you have a, a prominent woman like Hillary Clinton, and, and and the article focuses on what she looks like, or her hair, or her dress. Whereas if she was a man, nobody would be talking about those things, right. and that then reinforces or, or I think encourages that kind of discussion between women. Whereas we look at each other and start, you know, our, it, there's an interest in criticizing each other or, you know, finding reasons to criticize each other on the basis of those kinds of superficial mm. things like our appearance rather than looking at the, the, the work content. And, yeah. and having a discussion more on that issue. So, I mean, I think that's um, relevant and certainly important to be thinking about. And also, I think it's important for whomever to realize that if you have groups of women in a workplace, it is going to be different. Gender makes a difference. It, it does. <laughs> so it is important to have a different approach, and it's not prejudicial or discriminatory to say we want to act differently. In fact, that is a respect of diversity. It's looking at how difference affects the workplace and then reacting accordingly. I agree, and it's no different from having different strategies from a generational perspective. Absolutely. Is that you're going to treat Generation Y different than the baby boomers. Right. So. There's no difference. Yeah, and so I think for, you know, I think sometimes, particularly with men or male managers dealing with, they're concerned that if they sort of start thinking about it as from a female perspective, they're going to be labeled as discriminatory. No, it's simply looking at the difference and saying, how is this difference manifesting? And what does this mean? How, when you talked about being responsive um, as one of your, um, resilient. Resilient. Resilient, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think that's part of it is sort of saying, okay, well, I'm in a different situation now how do I deal with this? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's maybe finding out a little bit more about who are these people and how do they act and how do and, I need to adjust? Right, yeah. All right. Um, now, another question I wanted um, to uh, finish up with here would be, um, 
If you were able to speak to a group of male CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, what would you most like to say to them around this topic of women, leadership, and power? Um, and then if you could also comment, if you could speak to an ambitious group of Gen Y women, what would you most like to say to them? Well, I, the, the group of male CEOs is a bit of a challenging question for me because I don't think I would address an audience of male CEOs regarding gender differences. To me, that would sound a little bit like whining. <laughs> okay, when you say it would sound like whining, what do you mean by that? Well, it, it's, um, you know, I've, I hope that I've got ahead based on my own merits okay. and I'd be in front of them based on my own merits and gender hasn't held me back. Okay. Where, where I probably would um, try to champion the cause would be more around um, improved diversity at corporate with corporate boards. Okay. Uh, I just completed a 24-month mentoring program with women on boards, which is a mm -hmm. not-for-profit organization intended to try to break through the glass ceiling with respect to women on corporate boards. And when I talk about diversity, it's not just women, but it's other minorities. And mm -hmm. because there's been a ton of research out there that suggested that the more diverse the board, yep. uh, the correlation to high-performing organizations is right. quite clear. Yep. And in fact, a, a number of um, European countries have legislated a minimum number of women on boards. Now, I don't, ex I don't, I wouldn't want us to go there because I would hate to be appointed because I'm a token female. Right. But I would like to see um, more corporate boards have a, you know, a, a broader representation of the population because there's a lot of talent out there. Oftentimes, you hear is that well, there's no good ones or there's people with not enough experience. And again, I think it's because we haven't promoted ourselves okay. and. Uh, we don't have the same networks, so I, you know, I hope that will change. So I think I'd focus on the governance side of having more women on boards if I was addressing male CEOs. Okay, and, and focusing on the economic argument which you made before, which I talk about in Road to Respect, that it makes good business sense. It does, and when you think like uh, women make most of the consumer decisions, so uh, many of these board would, if they are missing a, a female's voice they're missing the biggest part of their market share. Right. So it's really not about, as you said, hiring a woman because she's a woman. It's hiring a woman or a person who's a different member of visible minority simply because it'll make your, your business stronger. It'll make you more effective. It'll give you a diversity of perspective, which is what we need in the reality of the world we're doing business in. That's, that's it, exactly. Okay. So in, in terms of speaking to ambitious Gen Y women, uh, sort of alluded to it before is um, I wouldn't focus on the label and it would be more around um, making sure that the work they do has meaning and gives them purpose and that they have a passion for it because I think you can achieve a lot if you if it gives you meaning mm -hmm. and you know figure out what you want to do and go for it and um, I, I think having a high level of self-awareness and openness to feedback are really in, uh, important elements in the you know, the desire to continuously learn. Okay. And, um, you know, if you bring that to it, anything's possible. Okay. And what you said earlier, which is don't be afraid to speak up for yourself, don't be afraid to self-identify, mm -hmm. and don't be afraid to ask for what you're worth in terms of your <laughs> salary expectations. That's right. Okay. Any last words that you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, making this available, and I hope some of the listeners would have at least got one little gem of 
insight from it. Oh, no doubt, more than one. So thank you so much again. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, Anne. And um, we're all going to keep our fingers crossed and be watching for when you get that CEO position. I hope so. And we'll come back and do a subsequent interview. Okay, Okay. thank you, Erica.